Foundations of the Faith. That's our series and our particular theme, which we started some time ago, has to do with future things. And we'll continue talking about future things tonight. By way of review, we started with this marvelous event. Hope you're looking forward to it, the rapture, during which time the Lord Jesus will come and uh, catch us up in the air, and it'll be marvelous because those who have passed on before us in Christ will rise first to meet up with the Lord in the air. We'll be reunited with them, and we shall forevermore be with the Lord. And then uh, there'll be this time when we stand before him. And, you know, it's kind of like, it'll be like high school graduation, the judgment seat of Christ in this sense. Everyone there will graduate who is a Christian. The matter of salvation has already been determined, not by our merits, but by the merits of Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf. So everyone walks across the platform and receives their diploma. Uh, but some, because they've performed in high school academically, athletically, perhaps better than others, you know, you receive certain special awards at high school graduation. That will happen with us at the judgment seat. And you know, at high school graduation, sometimes when you see one of your classmates receiving uh, a reward, you, an award and acknowledgement of good performance in one area or another. You say, oh, I wish I had applied myself like that person did because it would have been a wonderful feeling to have received uh, that award. Well, that's what we'll feel like at the judgment seat. You know, so make sure you're making good use of the time now if you're a Christian to glorify God, to serve him. And then we introduce this character, and that's what he is. He's not a concept or an idea. He's actually a person who will be empowered by the evil one, Satan. He's the Antichrist, and we spent a good deal of time speaking about him and his character and nature and what he seeks to do. And if you forgot, his primary interest is to be a parody of the real Christ. And so everything about the Lord Jesus, if you could just think of his opposite, that's the anti-Christ. His desire is to replace the Lord Jesus and thus to be the recipient of worship. And we're not going to give it to him because we've met the real Christ. So that's what we spoke about. And I'd like for us to go a little further now into the future by consulting a passage of Scripture which is quite uh, difficult and even controversial, but worth our attention because even though it's not so easy uh, to handle, it's laden with tremendously helpful information about the future. So I'd like for us, beginning tonight and then in weeks to come, to study it slowly and carefully, it's Matthew chapter 24, and we'll just look to a few verses of it this evening. But I want to give you a little background as you, some of you are turning to it uh, even now, it, Matthew 24. What happened is that the Lord has been embroiled in a debate uh, with Jewish religious leaders, sad but true. 
heavens to Betsy, their own Messiah is there and fleshed, you know, and they can't see him and they're denying him and they're looking to entrap him. And so in the prior chapter, he has been involved in this rather fierce debate with the Jewish religious leaders. And while he is engaging them in conversation of a fairly heated kind, his followers, the disciples they would become to be known as, are listening to every single word. Uh, they are, are paying close attention. And the Lord, in his debate with the Jewish religious leaders, told them that in the future, the temple in Jerusalem will be entirely destroyed, and so too will the holy city of Jerusalem. That's what the Lord is telling the Jewish religious leaders. And his disciples, uh, they're also Jewish, hear this. Now to them, you might find this a little hard to receive, but I believe it's true. Uh, the Lord's message of a coming destruction, both of the temple and Jerusalem, actually encouraged them a bit. And the reason is, since they were Jewish, they knew in Jewish thinking it was prophesied that before Messiah would come and establish his kingdom, it is true that the temple has to be destroyed and so to Jerusalem. And so if the Lord in his debate with religious leaders was informing them that this future event is on the horizon, in a sense, it encouraged his followers because then they knew, ah, now that means pretty soon he, uh, the Savior, Moshiach, the Messiah, is going to establish his kingdom on earth. And so he actually raised their enthusiasm and expectation. Okay, now that being the backdrop, let's begin our slow, somewhat difficult trek through Matthew chapter 24. Let's begin with verse 1. That's a good place to start. Here's what it said. Jesus came out from the temple. Not specifically the temple building as much as the temple precincts. Yeah, baby, here we go again. <laughs> Sometime after the rapture, we're going to get this right. Well, the, uh, those operators who are doing this right now, I think, are going to be here after the rapture. I mean, I'm, that's the only conclusion I can come up with. I'm sorry. So uh, it's the temple precincts that the Lord is coming out of. You know, it was a whole complex of buildings, the temple being, of course, the most outstanding and beautiful. But the Lord is leaving the temple complex and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him as if they had to. But it's okay, he's patient with them and with us. So this is what they do. The discussion with the religious leaders has ended. They have been attentive to the conversation. They stood by. They didn't participate in it except as active listeners. And they're very curious now about what the Lord had told the religious leaders. And uh, they are um, calling his attention to these 
precincts, this, this temple complex, which, by the way, magnificent architecture, which had just been rather recently completely renovated to completion by King Herod. You have heard of him. And so his disciples come to him, and in the next verse, verse 2, he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Well, they point out to him the massive and impressive stones of the temple, and he tells them of the fate of these massive and impressive stones. Now, they didn't fully understand how they got erected, and they surely don't understand how they're going to be destroyed. You see, the temple stones were massive, multi-ton stones. Folks, this is in a day before all this electrical machinery and all this kind of stuff. It's a magnificent architectural masterpiece. The temple, marble and gold, and the sun would shine, and it's on hills in Jerusalem. It's elevated, and pilgrims could see it from afar, miles around. It was one of the wonders, architectural wonders of the day. The stones, you can go today and not see the temple, but just the... um, perimeter wall, the retaining wall of the earthen platform on which the temple once stood, and they're massive stones. There's no mortar or cement or concrete that holds them together. They were just put in place. And it's quite interesting. You see this bottom. Why don't they just fall down? Well, Herod constructed it so that each layer of stone would be in from the bottom one by about a half an inch. So it's leaning back so that it doesn't fall forward. You couldn't put hardly a toothpick in between some of them. The architectural design of it is so amazing. In fact, Herod conscripted 10,000 stone cutters to work on this. 10,000. And they worked on the main building, that is to say the temple, for 10 years from 20 to 10 B.C. And in addition, uh, Herod conscripted 1,000 priests descendants of Levi in order to work on the sacred parts of the temple because the non-Levitical stone cutters couldn't lay their hands lest they defile. They couldn't lay their hands on the holy place and the holy of holies as those places were being constructed. So there were a thousand priests who worked on it. And this was just the main building, the temple itself. The construction of the entire complex, the temple complex, went on from 10 BC to 64 AD. Years and years and years. And so the disciples, I suppose, felt like they had to remind the Lord of the grandeur of it all. And so they pointed this all out to him in the event that maybe he forgot about it and and they're perplexed about it. And how, how could it all come down? This is which has been so gloriously erected over decades. But he said, nonetheless, not one stone which you see would be left upon another. He said to them in advance of the actual occurrence, he said, 
No, they'll all be turned down, torn down. And I tell you, uh, it, that's how it happened. They were. You could go to Israel today and you could actually see right where they have been left some of these massive stones which came down from the temple platform to street level. They are there today. They have not been moved even down to this very day. They're still there as in a heap on the ground. They were torn down, you see, just as the Lord said they would be. The Romans did it, you know. They're the bad guys. Yeah, the Romans did it. And they did it under the leadership of a guy named Titus. He's like a really bad guy. And uh, he commanded the legion that did this, in fact. And they did it in A.D. 70. So that means just six years after Herod, this great genius, yet crazed genius, constructed and renovated the temple, which you know was originally built by King Solomon. Just six years after it was completed, the Romans under Titus tore it down in A.D. 70. Now, there's a lot of significance about A.D. 70 in this whole thing. Could I just point out one thing I Uh, It occurs to me to be quite significant. It's this. The Lord pronounced publicly a prediction about a future event. It had not yet happened. He said, you see all this? Well, I tell you, it will all be torn down. Not one stone will remain upon another. Listen, I just got to tell you, that's a little different than I see a wonderful person coming into your life. You know, these crazy palm-reading goofball. This is a very specific prediction of a future event and an extremely unlikely one at that. And yet, it came to pass just as the Lord said in A.D. 70. And here is the point. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to raise their confidence in his predictive ability. And so he first tells them about an event in the future, but in the fairly near future, just a few years from this pronouncement, so that his credibility would go up in the hearts and minds of his followers, so that when he, in this very chapter, Matthew 24, talks to them about events much more distant in the future, way beyond A.D. 70, they will say, just as the destruction of the temple came to pass, as he said, so too will the rest. Now, some very mistakenly think that all the Lord Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24 was fulfilled in A.D. 70. And they are wrong. No, no, no. Though that's a very significant year. Heavens to Betsy. The temple was torn down just as the Lord said. I'm telling you, it was to raise their confidence in the Lord's predictive ability of events way down here in the mountain range of prophecy. So, this happened just as the Lord said in A.D. 70. This is what happened next. In verse 3, Matthew 24, verse 3. 
as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. You can do it, you know. So, I mean, you're here at the temple complex. And if you look over there, you look across a valley called the Kidron Valley. In those days, there was actually a, a bridge you could walk over. The Lord often did. So he would go from the temple complex with all of its hustle and bustle, cross over the Kidron Valley, and he would go to the Mount of Olives. It was regularly his practice to go there so as to pray to the Father. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane is located. How do you think Judas knew where he was? He knew that the Lord Jesus was in the habit of regularly retiring there for private moments of prayer with his father. So the Lord is there and he's sitting there on the Mount of Olives in those days. It was covered by many more olive trees than today. What happened to him? I'm telling you, bad guy Titus had him cut down, used them as kindling to burn down Jerusalem. So anyway, the Lord leaves the temple complex, goes eastward, crosses the Kidron Valley, sits on the Mount of Olives, the text says, and the disciples came to him privately. You know, that's what happens when you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. You could come together in a big group like ours, but then you have the extraordinary privilege of going to him privately. So don't just settle for the corporate experience. Become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you could have access to him privately just as these guys did. So they go to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they are intrigued by what he said. To them, the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple kind of heralded the establishment of Messiah's kingdom. And so they want to know timing. When is it going to happen? Tell us when is all this going to happen? When will be the end of the age? And that's why I say what's happening here takes us way beyond A.D. 70. Tell us when will be the end of the age. And so the Lord hears their question and takes their question as an opportunity to answer, to respond. And this he does in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. It is the longest recorded response of the Lord Jesus to any question put to him during his earthly ministry. And it is commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. Why? Because he gave it while sitting on the Mount of Olives. It is the Olivet Discourse. And it must be consulted if we would have accurate information about future events. And so this is what we'll do. We'll carefully look at it one verse at a time. Now we move to verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, they asked him a question, he answers, see to it that no one misleads you. Now the reason the Lord said that is that it's possible. <laughs> we could be misled. Why? Because there are people intent on doing just that, misleading us. Some even want to fool us. Can you get this? Some even want to fool us into thinking they be the Messiah. 
Hey, look, we've had people already. You know, you got Reverend Moon, you got Jim Jones, you got... You have pretenders to the throne. People who are promising deliverance, salvation, redemption, renovation, and all the rest, but lacking both the authority and the credentials and the power to pull it off. But there always have been pretenders to the throne. And that's why the Lord says in verse 5 of Matthew 24, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, meaning the anointed one, meaning the Messiah, and will mislead many. Now I know, as do you, this is not a new thing, that there's been this kind of deceptive attempt to cause people to follow false messiahs. That isn't entirely new, but I think, as you will see, as we get immersed more and more in the weeks ahead, in the context of the Olivet Discourse, I think you'll see that though this has been a tendency that isn't new, people claiming messiahship, I think you'll see what the Lord is speaking of is a time, a future time, where this kind of thing will increase both in intensity and rapidity. Things will happen much more quickly than ever before and with greater intensity than ever before. And so I think the Lord here is speaking of the very next mountain peak in his prophetic mountain range, and it is this which is called the tribulation. Tribulation. Hang on just a second. I don't want to knock down the mountain. Okay, is it going? Okay. So, this is what we're going to talk about in the, uh, the next few weeks. This tribulation period of time. Uh, we began our study, if you recall, a long time ago uh, by using an Old Testament passage of Scripture as an outline for our discussion on future things. And it was in Daniel chapter uh, 9. And uh, Daniel prayed to God, wanting to know about his design, his plans for Israel. And God answered through Gabriel, an angel, and Gabriel uh, gave this prophecy to Daniel. And so we began it in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, and it speaks of 70 weeks. And so this is known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. And you know, a long time ago, we spoke of what this means, and that week is actually a week of years. So seven days in a week, but these 70 weeks are 70 periods of seven years. So seven times 70 is a period of time, 490 years. I'm going through this pretty quick, but if you want to review, you could go back to when we started. So 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. Remember, this is God's response to Daniel's question. God, what do you have in mind for the Jews? Well, here it is. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Well, come on. You know, folks, I think I mentioned to you, hope I didn't offend you, we're not talking about Clute over here. We're talking about Jerusalem. That's the, you know, that's the holy city over here. And so, 
uh, uh, 70 weeks now, if you count, I mentioned when we started this, six things have to happen during this 70-week period or 70 periods of seven years. You can count them. Here's the first. To finish transgression, to make an end of sin, that's two. Three, to make atonement for iniquity. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal up vision and prophecy. And the sixth, to anoint the most holy place. And that's why people who say all this prophecy has already been fulfilled in A.D. 70, they don't know what they're talking about. Those six things have not yet been entirely fulfilled at all. And so you have this period of time, uh, which, and the 70th week of it is this tribulation period of time, which I think the Lord is introducing uh, to his disciples in answer to their question. So the 70th week of Gabriel's prophecy to Daniel is a period of seven years characterized by great tribulation. So we know it's a period of time immediately preceding the Lord's second coming. So it's seven years which ends with the Lord returning. But we know not only when this tribulation period ends, we also know very specifically when it begins. Again, by consulting Daniel's prophecy. In this case, Daniel 9, verse 27. And he, I can't take the time now, but we've developed this. The he is Antichrist. He will make a firm covenant with the many. The many are the Jews in Israel and other nations. He will make a firm covenant. Remember I mentioned it was a peace covenant? Nobody has been able to affect peace in the Middle East. Everyone yearns for it but can't pull it off. The Antichrist will manage to do it. And the world's gullible leaders will get behind him. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But that's a week of years. For seven years. But in the middle of the week, so that means after three and a half years, three and a half years into the 70th week of Daniel, three and a half weeks takes us to the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel, three and a half years into this seven-year future period of time called the tribulation. At that point, he, the Antichrist, will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. What does that mean? It means he worked it out so that the Jews would have their glorious temple reconstructed somehow in Jerusalem and their temple practices, including these offerings, will be re-inaugurated. And they're going to love this Antichrist. He will fool them into thinking he is for them when in fact he wants to destroy them. But at the mid point of the tribulation period, after three and a half years, three and a half years after the signing of the peace covenant with Israel and her surrounding neighbors, term used loosely, uh, he will put a stop to all this and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So we know the great tribulation ends when the Lord returns. 
after the battle of Armageddon. But we also know that it begins with the signing of this peace treaty between Antichrist and many nations. Now, folks, that is a specific time of tribulation, not to take away from the fact the world has always known tribulation and trouble. The church in particular has always experienced tribulation for following the Lord Jesus Christ. But this particular time will be a time of unprecedented tribulation and trouble, the likes of which the world has never seen, because it will be a time during which the Antichrist, in an unrestrained way, will weave his evil plan to receive worship in place of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there will be an unparalleled horror during the tribulation period as is spelled out in both Old and New Testaments. For instance, in the Old Testament, Isaiah refers to this period of time as a day of the terror of the Lord when the pride of men will be abased. Zephaniah refers to it as a day of wrath, by the way. That's why you, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, won't be there. You see, this is your destiny, the rapture before the day of wrath. Why no wrath for you? Didn't the Father's wrath fully outpoured on the Lord Jesus Christ? Didn't that satisfy his righteous demands for the punishment of unholiness and sin? Do you need to add to the excruciating substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ? There is no wrath for the children of God anymore because it all fell upon the shoulders of the Lord Jesus. Don't you remember when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the wrath of the Father. Do us on him in our place. I accept it. You accept it. Don't ask for more trouble. Yours is the rapture, not the tribulation. That is not your destiny if your members of the church of Jesus Christ. So it's a day of wrath, Zephaniah says. He calls it a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation. Old Testament. New Testament. Last book of the Bible, Revelation. Did you know it's called Revelation, not Revelations? Why is that? It's singular. John received it as a vision, a singular vision, not Revelations. Revelation. And in Revelation, chapters 6 to 19 have as their theme this tribulation period. So we're not locating it in an isolated passage of Scripture. Chapters 6 all the way through 19 in Revelation speak about the characteristics of this seven-year period of time known as the time of tribulation. Jeremiah wrote about it. He's an Old Testament prophet. You know about him. And he refers to this period of time in a most unusual, rather haunting way. He calls it the time of Jacob's trouble or of Jacob's distress. This, in fact, is what he says in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. Alas, for the day, that day is great. There is none like it. 
And it is the time, see, of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. What happens during this time? Well, God will discipline his covenant people. They have turned on their own Messiah. He will discipline them during this time of tribulation. And his primary instrument of discipline is none other than the Antichrist himself. So this will be a time of persecution of the Jews. So that those who emerge are a remnant who believe. You see what Jeremiah said? But he will be saved from it. God's intent is to deliver from Israel. Though many will perish. Enough who will look upon him whom they have pierced and recognize him as Messiah. So the Lord will use Antichrist who thinks he's empowered by Satan. The Lord can use even him as his vessel of discipline with reference to his chosen people, the Jews. And so God will allow the Antichrist to arrange for the Jewish temple to be rebuilt and for their practices to be reestablished and they will be fooled into thinking he is a man of peace when in fact he's the son of destruction and of lawlessness. And the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 tells us about him, Antichrist. Then I saw, see Revelation was a vision he received. Then I saw when the Lamb, that's the Lord Jesus, broke one of the seven seals. Those are horrific judgments. The judgments of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice of thunder, come. I looked and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it, first horseman of the apocalypse, first of the four horsemen who come for judgment. Judgment of the apocalypse is the word revelation. And he who sat on this white horse had a bow. A bow. Something's missing. He only had a bow. What good is a bow without? Yeah, but I don't see arrows here. Just his bow. He had a bow. And a crown was given to him. He had authority. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Now the rider on the white horse is the Antichrist. And he has a bow, as you correctly observed, but no arrows. Yet it says he went out to conquer. So how is he going to conquer without arrows, without weaponry? I'll tell you how. He conquers with perhaps the most effective weapon of all, deception. He goes about conquering with the weapon of deception. He deceives people into thinking that he, the man of lawlessness, as described by Paul, and the son of destruction, he deceives them into thinking he's actually the man of peace. Does this sound far-fetched? Well, if so, you're not watching the political horizon. It appears that anyone who's a good speaker and make promises is electable in our day today. Quite interesting to me. Multiply the eloquence and charisma of an antichrist in a world hungry for solutions 
to what appear to be unsolvable global problems, and that guy is going to be more than electable. He's going to be followed. So it's the Antichrist who John speaks of here in Revelation 6 during the tribulation. But then in the middle of this period of time, this one on the white horse will put an end to it all and require worship himself and he'll desecrate the temple, we read in Daniel's prophecy, with great abominations and he will unleash great persecution against the Jews who sign a peace treaty with him. Why such hatred of the Jews? Here's the answer. God made a covenant with the Jews. We went over it during our series on Israel a million years ago, it seems. Genesis 12, it's called the Abrahamic Covenant because God called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees and brought him into the land of promise and said to him, Abram, I'll bless those who bless thee, curse those who curse thee. And I promise through your descendants, that is, through the line of Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, I promise to you a land. And God gave the specific geographic boundaries of the land and a dynasty, a king, and a seed, and a people, and a posterity, and a future for those people. And I asked you to search the Abrahamic covenant for a condition which Abraham's descendants had to fulfill in order to retain the covenant promises. And you came up with none because there ain't none. It's called an unconditional covenant just like the new covenant with you is. What did you do? to merit and sustain your salvation. Zippo! You came with empty hands as a beggar and you said, Lord Jesus, forgive me, I bring sin, nothing else. Cover up for my iniquity with your shed blood and make me clean and whole. Come into my life, please make me a little temple of your Holy Spirit. Why did you bring to the table but indebtedness? And so the Abrahamic covenant is just like that. You can't forfeit the new covenant by being a wretch. Good night. That's everyone in here. Nobody's such a bargain. And the Jews could not forfeit the direct and conditions of the Abrahamic covenant through their horrific misbehavior over the centuries because the Abrahamic covenant uh, was authored by the God of grace without condition. And if we don't understand it, I assure you Satan does. And that's why the Jews must be destroyed. You see, if the Jews are destroyed, then there is no people with whom God can fulfill his covenant. And if there are no people, Jews, with whom God can fulfill his covenant, I want to know what reason you have to believe he's going to fulfill his new covenant with you. You see, if God can't pull it off with the Jews, if their sin is greater than his capacity to fulfill this covenant, if they aren't even around, then we have no choice but to find God who we up until now have worshipped to be very weak and maybe even worse, a liar. He lied to the Jews. What makes you think he's not going to lie to you? 
and he's weak. He authored your salvation, but couldn't bring it to consummation. You got away. And his hold on you wasn't strong enough. So can you see what's at stake? I'll tell you what it is. It's a cosmic battle that has nothing at all to do with the geopolitical situation the world is now embroiled in. It has everything to do with a cosmic battle which only certain eyes illuminated by the Holy Spirit can see. It's a reality behind the scenes. It's a cosmic battle between Satan and Savior. And it began when Satan rebelled against the Most High God took with him fallen angels, otherwise known as demons, and said, I will be like the Most High God. How do you do it? Get people to cease worshiping him. And we will if we find him to be weak and a liar. So if you can drive the Jews into the sea, if you can get rid of them, you have just besmirched the credibility of God. You've called into question the veracity of his word to the Jews and therefore to the church. And you are without hope. You might as well look for another deliverer. How about Antichrist? So can you see what's going on? It has nothing to do with land for peace and all this kind of nonsense. It's a cosmic battle behind the scenes. So, one of the characteristics, in answer to the disciples' question, they said, when is the end of the age going to be? When is this going to happen? And the Lord gave them an answer to their question, the first indicator, the first sign of the end of the age to look for. It's in verse 5 for, of Matthew 24. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will miss." Lead many. In other words, the first sign of the end of the age and the beginning of the tribulation period is deception. There will be much deception. So, during this time of tribulation, it is a deliverer who is just the one the world is looking for. It is in disarray. There is a horrific out of turmoil and evil. Everyone is going to be looking for a Messiah, a deliverer, a rescuer, and they will search high and low. And in this day, many will claim to be he. He is here. He is there. Go find him at this meeting. Go find him at that meeting. And so the gullibility based on the hunger for deliverance during the time of tribulation will be so enhanced that deception will be more intensified and rapid and global than at any time in spiritual deception than at any time in human history. And not only that, I think I made the point as strongly as I could and I want to continue to, that the tribulation comes chronologically after the rapture. So that means that the rapture, the spirit-filled, indwelt by God's spirit, people of God are gone. Salt and light are gone. They're with the Lord. 
It's what we read about in 2 Thessalonians when it spoke about the man of lawlessness yet to be revealed, but being restrained by him. And the him is the Holy Spirit actively indwelling Christians. The church. So when the church is raptured, then there is no preservative, no salt. Then there is no enlightenment, no light. Then there is no restraining agent on the earth because we've been lifted up, raised to be with the Lord. And then you think things are bad now? Oh, no. They're under wraps. God, in the power of His Holy Spirit, through us, the church of Jesus Christ, is the agent of restraint. But when there is no longer that agent, all Hell will break loose. You'll see upheaval of a political and economic kind, of a religious kind. You'll see immorality and enactment of godless, anti-God legislation, the likes of which will make any previous period in human history look like a walk in the park. We're gone. God's people are gone, lifted, removed from the earth, and the Antichrist has free reign. Every evil you can think of, which is so repulsive to you, will be intensified during that period of time. So the Lord responded to their question about the future. Here in Matthew 24, at these first few verses, he began to tell them, this is what to look for, so that you will not be deceived. And he gave them only the first sign in our study tonight, a time of intensified, widespread, global, spiritual deception. And in the Olivet Discourse, he's going to give his followers in the first century and us by extension a very specific enumeration of other characteristics of this very specific, horrific future period of time known as the tribulation. And I can't see into the future, but Lord willing, we'll get together next week, pick it up in Matthew 24, verse 6, and see some of the other indicators of this time of great tribulation, which the Lord says, by the way, just the beginning of birth pangs. Are you scared? Me too, I'm scared. But then I try to stop it. I'm scared. Then I try, when I get that way, I'm just a human, right? So when I get fearful about stuff, I try to stop and say, oh, wait, wait. He's got the whole world, past, present, and future in his hands. He's sovereign, and he's good, and nothing takes him by surprise. And this awesome deity, this Alpha and Omega, this God who has no beginning nor any end, this all-powerful, ever-present, omniscient, all-knowing one, this otherwise unapproachably holy God, this one who is repulsed by evil because he has as his inherent nature to be good. This one has adopted me into his family. And you, if you've let him,
Why not let him? Why not let that event be your future instead of that event? Choose life through the giver of life that you may live. That's what the Bible says. Lord Jesus, we bow before you. We dismiss any pretender to the throne. We bow at your feet. You are glorious and will not give your praise to another. You will have worship for you are the only one worthy of it. You are outside of time. It's simply only a vehicle by which the outworking of your redemptive plan ensues. There is no past, present, future for you. You see the end even from the beginning. We're a little confused about things, but we thank you at least for clarifying the peaks, the prominent peaks of your mountain range of future events. We love the chronology of it all. What precedes the tribulation of earth dwellers is the rapture of the church. May it not be that one person, therefore, leaves here tonight without saying, Lord Jesus, adopt me. Make me to be a member of the universal church which you will rapture on this glorious day. Please, O oh God, free me from the consequence of my sin, from the presence and power of my sin, you being the recipient of holy wrath and judgment for me. Come into me, Lord Jesus. Live out your life even in little old me. And let's live forevermore in keeping with your promise. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.